Welcome to the Upper Room Sermon of the Week. For more information, go to urfellowship.com. How do you do, everybody? <laughs> so my wife told me this week that I need to uh, smile more when I'm teaching because I look angry or uh, very serious when I'm up here talking. Maybe you felt that. I don't know. I don't know. Here's the thing. I'm not angry. I promise. All right. My wife doesn't understand because my wife, she just looks super kind and happy almost all the time. So there's something about her that makes people just go, I think she really likes me. Right? That, I don't think that happens with me. I think usually people look at me and go, they, that guy might try to hurt me. Uh, like, <laughs> Mark knows what I'm talking about. Like, I've been grocery shopping by myself before. Like, I like to go Friday mornings, uh, just me and the ladies there. And, I, and I've been coming up an aisle, and I've had women turn into the aisle, look up and see me, and just go, nope, uh-uh, turn right around. Just, mm-mm, not going to deal with that today. So they don't even give me a chance. I could, you know, like, like I could help them reach something on the high shelf or something, but, but no, I'm actually very nice. I'm much less likely to hurt you than my wife, but I, I look mean. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to smile more, but if you feel like I look angry, I'm not. I'm, I'm actually enjoying myself, okay? I'm, I'm very happy. So anyway, Proverbs. So we've been looking at the book of Proverbs in the subject of wisdom for the past few weeks, and we have said that wisdom is knowing the right thing to do in the, in the majority of life situations where the moral rules don't really apply. Like, do I, do I say something here? Do I wait? Do I act? Uh, or, or should I hold off, right? Should I risk it? Should I not? Um, the moral rules don't really cover those things. Yet, yet, if you mess things up there with those kind of choices, you kind of you can mess up your life. So, we've been saying that wisdom is not, it's not a formula that helps you make right choices and decisions, but it's having a character of the mind and the heart that enables you to make the right decisions. So, so how do we get that character? We started looking at that last week by, by looking at our inner spirit, our inner being health, our minds. This week, we're going we're gonna to look at our hearts. So let's start by reading Proverbs 4, 11 through 19. It says, uh, I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. For they cannot rest until they do evil. They are robbed of sleep until they make someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter until the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. So this again talks about how life is like walking a path. And it's saying that when you walk a path, mainly you walk, right? I know that's deep. But what I mean is, sometimes you run, sometimes there are emergencies, so you slow down. Like verse 12 talks about running on a path. But mainly the way you move forward is step, 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 left, right, left. Daily repeated small activities that over time take you someplace. 
This is the Bible's way of saying your character is determined by the daily choices you make. But look at this. This is interesting. In verse 14, at the beginning of the, the pathway, it talks about how you're in control. You have choices. It says, do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. So avoid that path. Don't get over on that path. At the beginning, you can choose. You can decide to do it or not, right? But look what happens as we get further down the wrong path. Verse 16, they are robbed of sleep until they make someone stumble. It's talking about those who have gotten on to the wicked path. And it's using language of selfishness and pride, right? They don't, they want to go to sleep, but they can't sleep because someone is doing better than them. Someone has more money, has more power, so they need to bring them down. So it's self-centeredness, self-absorption. Eventually, verse 19, you get all the way to uh, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. So this is talking about people eventually, as they get down that wicked path, they just become out of touch with reality. Right? Things are going wrong in their life, but they have no idea why. How do you get there? It's a path. Step, step, step. Your daily choices. For example, every time you experience something good, and instead of being grateful, you just take it for granted, as if you deserve it, you're putting a mark on your soul. You've taken a step on the path to resentment. Every time you try to, or if you get into a conflict and you try to blame shift, it's a step in the wrong direction. It's the little things, those little choices that, you're, that, that fix your character and your destiny. As a side note, if you understand this, it really helps us to come to grips with one of the parts of the Bible that people really have the most trouble with, which is the idea of uh, eternal punishment. So, so the Bible says there are many people who are going to live eternity away from the presence of God, right? It's called hell in the Bible. And a lot of people go, I don't like that idea. And that's understandable. But I think this idea of the path can help us. I think most people think it's going to be like this. Like the minute you die, suddenly God appears and says, ah, it's too late now. You didn't make the right choice. You didn't believe in me. And now you're going to suffer. Then suddenly in like that movie Ghost, do you remember the movie Ghost, Patrick Swayze movie? These little creepy, wispy demon things come out of the walls and grab you and drag you off into the darkness. No? I'll say, anyway, that happens in the movie. As they drag you away while you're yelling, no, 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 God says in Latin or something, get him out of my sight. I don't think that's how it's going to happen. How about this? Imagine for the sake of argument that when you die, your soul keeps going and that you continue on the path you started here. And here's what I mean. There's a lot of things that aren't really worth bothering with if I'm just only going to live 80 years or so, but that I had better bother with if I'm going to live forever. You understand what I'm saying? Maybe my bad temper or my jealousy or my pride are getting gradually worse so gradually that will increase in my lifetime, and it won't, but it won't be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years or so. So in fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct term for it. The guy I quote almost weekly, C.S. Lewis, said this. He said, it's not a question of God sending people to hell. In every one of us, there is something growing up which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Those who are in hell are there by their own choice. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there will come a day when you can no longer. 
Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. So I don't know whether you believe in hell or not, but if Christianity is true, and there is a hell, no one spends eternity away from the presence of God except people who choose it and continue to prefer those conditions as to being in the presence of someone who is Lord over them or someone who is more glorious than them. Lewis calls hell the greatest monument to human freedom. God wants no one to spend time in hell. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But God gives people what they want. And the little daily choices are setting your character and your destiny and your eternity right now. So, the question is, how do we stay on the path of life? How do you become a more unselfish person? Right, a, more, a less prideful person. How do you behave differently? How do we do better? One of the answers that the world likes to give is behavior modification. Right? Behavior modification is you're doing these things, you need to stop doing them because they're, they're wrong or they're bad. They're bad. So, so what we'll do is we'll give you some rules to modify your behavior. You know, you can't have a computer, you can't be with those people, you can't go to those places. And some of that's totally good, because it helps us to reduce the amount of temptation that comes at us. So it's not all bad or evil, but, all, but it ultimately just deals with symptoms rather than root. It just changes behavior. And God wants more for you than behavior modification. This might surprise some of you, but God wants more than for you to be a good person. He wants you to be a worshiper, loving him and the others in your life. And so there's a, there's a couple problems with behavior modification. First, it just kind of rearranges the flesh. Uh, it just takes our sin nature and tries to work around it, but it doesn't really deal with the real problem. Number two, it usually leads to either pride or despair. Classic example, we feel like we aren't healthy, so what we do is behavior modification, right? Call it a diet. And so we make a, these rules, a diet plan, and what can happen is pride. We keep all the rules. We lose the weight, and then we feel like we are better than those people who just can't seem to lose the, the weight that they should because, well, they just aren't as disciplined as we are. I have the six-pack, and they have, that's more like a two-liter, right? So if we exchange gluttony for pride, we've just rearranged the flesh. Or the alternative is we try to modify our behavior, but we can't do it. So we try to eat right, but eventually we can't force down any more Acacia berries and, you know, kale smoothies. So we make ourselves a macaroni and cheese smoothie. And we, <laughs> and we, just, like we just go get a job at Krispy Kreme. Just whatever. Yeah. One for you, one for me. One for you. And we feel sad and depressed because we can't accomplish the behavior modification we set it out for ourselves. We set for ourselves. And I'm not saying that diet plans or any other behavior modification attempts are bad. I'm just saying, watch your heart. Watch your heart as you try to modify your behavior. The other problem, I think, with behavior modification is those of us who are parents, really even those of us who have had parents, so I guess that's everybody. For everybody, behavior modification is oftentimes ingrained in us. So if you're a parent, your goal is not to raise kids who are just obedient. So, so here's what I mean. I've told this story before. Maybe some of you haven't heard it, but my oldest daughter, I don't think she's in here, is she? Good. Okay, good. Um... 
I'm going to skip it if she were. She's the, she's the joy of my life. I pray for her a lot. The Lord's really going to stretch me with her. She understands that if she obeys, good things happen. If she disobeys, bad things happen. But what she likes to do is get as close to the line as she can sometimes. Right? My youngest daughter isn't like that. I'll be like, why did you grab that from your sister? And she'll be like, because I wanted it. Okay, well, there you go. If you wanted it, totally understandable. understandable. That's my youngest. But my oldest, she understands the behavior that is expected, but sometimes she'll defy the heart of it. So when she was about five, she loved to climb up on the counters and get stuff out of the cabinet to eat. So, so one time I came in the kitchen, and there was sweet cane up on the counter. So I said for the fourth time that day, Kena, don't get up on the counter to get stuff out of the cabinet. Okay, Dad. I leave the room for a little while. I go into the living room, and I hear some scuffling and movement in the kitchen. So I think, what's going on in there? So I walk back into the kitchen, and here's what I see. I see Cana standing on the floor, and Corinne, who is two, on the counter getting something out of the cabinet for Cana. Somehow she had heaved her two-year-old sister up there on the counter so that she could get her what she wanted out of the cabinet. So I'm like, Cana? She's like, I'm not on the counter. <laughs> and Rin's just like, what? You know. So even though her behavior kind of lined up with what was expected of her, her heart wasn't there at all. Ultimately, the Bible is not primarily concerned about behavior modification. It's concerned with the heart. So I think this, it talks about this in Proverbs 4, 20 through 27. It says... My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear from my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So some translations say that the heart is the wellspring of life. I like that word picture. Verse 24. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. So in the beginning it says, my son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. He says, listen to my words. Hear my words. Then he says, keep them within your heart. This is the key to life change and transformation. This is the key to staying on the path of life. And it can't be a white-knuckled, sheer willpower behavior modification thing. Why? Because in Proverbs 4.23, it tells us that everything flows from the heart. Not the will, not your willpower. That means that your heart determines your feelings, your actions, your thinking, the way you perceive everything. Everything in your life comes from what happens in your heart. And it says, pay attention. Guard your heart. For from it flows everything you do. Look at your heart as a source of all that flows forward in the river of your life. It's a beautiful word picture, right? One of the things that makes Proverbs so memorable and practical is it just uses these great word pictures. Here's one. Think of your heart as a spring from which life flows. So Proverbs said all of the issues in your life can only be dealt with by ultimately going back to our heart, which is the source of life. Just like if there's things you don't like in a river, you need to go upstream to find the source of pollution. Once you get your heart right, 
Once you get the truth in your heart, then verse 24 tells us that you can look at what you say. Verse 25 says you can work on how you view things. Then verses 26 and 7 say then you look at your behavior. But first the heart. Everything flows from the heart. Why? The heart is really what the Bible says is the center of our being, right? It is your core commitments, the things you most fundamentally love, the things you hope in. It's the essence of who we are. That's why you'll hear people use, you, you know, use this even in non-biblical language. Well, we need to get to, heart, to the heart of the matter. It's the bottom line, the truth, really. Where are we at? And that's what the Bible's saying. It's the essence of who we are, which means whatever your heart has decided is its ultimate love determines all the ways in which you make your life choices. So here's the conundrum. On the one hand, it's your little choices that determine who you're going to be. But on the other hand, you can't change your heart, which dictates your choices by just trying harder or by behavior modification. So what do we do? There was nobody who was more frustrated by this problem than Martin Luther. Martin Luther realized we're all on this path to self-centeredness. He saw it in himself. He also realized he had to change his heart not just his behavior in order to change directions. And, this, and he didn't know how. And this freaked Luther out. Martin Luther was part of an order of monks, and the, the head of the order was this man named Johann von Stupitz. Von Stupitz was a great guy, and he was the guy that Luther would go confess his sins to. Well, after a while, Martin Luther was going in for six-hour confessional sessions every day. He began to drive von Stupitz crazy. At one point, he said, Martin... I like this. It's as if you call every fart a sin, which is pretty good. Pretty good for a monk in the 16th century. Pretty solid joke. Martin Luther answered by basically saying, I wanted to find the path of life. I didn't want to go down the path of self-centeredness, so I became a monk. And guess what? Now I help the poor. But I realize I don't help the poor for the sake of the poor. I do it so I can feel good about myself. I'm not doing it for the poor, not for God. I'm doing it for myself. He said, when I come to confess my sins to you, I realize I'm doing it not for the sake of humility, but because I like to think of myself as humble. He said, I have left worldly pleasures to be chaste and religious, but I am just as self-centered in my morality as I was in my immorality. He understood that he was still on that path of self-centeredness. So what's the answer? How do we keep our hearts right? Centuries after this proverb was written, there was a group of disciples sitting around Jesus hoping he would help them with wisdom, this exact thing. Jesus said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to my father's house. There are many rooms in my father's house. I'll go, I go to prepare a place for you. And one of the disciples, Philip, said to Jesus, Master, we don't know the way. Philip was saying, look, We've read the Proverbs. We're, we're looking for the way to life. You know, hear the truth, put it in your heart, follow the path to life. But we need wisdom because we don't know the way. And Jesus said one of the most amazing things anyone has ever said in the history of people saying stuff. He looked at them and, and he didn't say, I have shown you the way. Or if you live like I live, then you will find the way. Or I, I point to the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I've done it for you. 
when Martin Luther realized that, that God gives us a righteousness as a gift, and we receive it by faith because of what Jesus Christ has done. Jesus, uh, Martin Luther said, I at once felt I was born again, and I was ushered through open gates into paradise. It changed his life. And the only way you're going to get your heart to look away from money or you know, children or marriage or, or anything else is you have to have a greater beauty. As we experience God in a greater way, as our relationship with him grows, as we see him for who he is, he regenerates our heart. He goes all the way upstream to the wellspring of life and deals with our heart. And then everything downstream can change. The Bible talks about this in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. God says, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So Christianity isn't about behavior modification or trying harder. Christianity is about getting a new heart. He says, I'll give you a soft heart, a loving heart, a repentant heart. I'll put my spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, in you, which will help you to follow his decrees and keep his laws. If your relationship with Jesus has stalled out, and, and you know what I mean when I say that, you who are there, man, pray God would restore the joy or salvation because you need to see the beauty of Jesus. You need to see the value of a personal relationship with him. That will melt your heart away from these other things. It will heal your heart. It will change your heart. It will give you a heart that wants to stay on the path to life. So I'm going to read real quick what, what a new heart gives us, okay? I came up with 13 marks of a new heart just in Proverbs, okay? A new heart uh, desires obedience. So Proverbs 4.4, 4, we're going to just go through these quickly. Take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep, keep my commands and you will live. Where am I at? Oh, maybe I only have 12. Number two, Proverbs 5.12 says, How I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. So he says, with my old heart, I hated discipline and correction. Now, my new heart, I love to learn and to change. Number three, a new heart is teachable. Proverbs 10.8 the wise in heart accept commands, but a chattering fool comes to ruin. Number four, a new heart is content. Proverbs 14.30, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Number five, a new heart loves wisdom. Proverbs 15.14 says, the discerning heart seeks knowledge, but the mouth of a fool feeds on folly. Number six, a new heart is cheerful. Proverbs 15, 15 says, All the days of the oppressed are wretched, but the cheerful heart has a continual feast. Number seven, a new heart is helpful. Proverbs fifteen twenty eight says, The heart of the righteous weighs its answers, but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil. Number eight, a new heart is discerning. Proverbs sixteen twenty one says, The wise in the heart are called discerning, and gracious words promote instruction. Number nine, a new heart is persuasive. Proverbs 16, 23, the hearts of the wise make their mouths prudent and makes their lips persuasive. 
Number 10, a new heart is humble. Proverbs 18, 12 says, Before downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Number 11, a new heart is intelligent. Proverbs 18, 15 says, An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, for the ears of the wise seek it out. And number 12, a new heart is repentant, meaning you apologize for your sin, and by the power of the Holy Spirit you change. So Proverbs 28, 14 says, Blessed is the one who always trembles before God, but whoever hardens their heart falls into trouble. It's the marks of a new heart. Let me close with one more verse, and this will we'll wrap this whole thing up. Uh, Psalms 37.4 says, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Here's what this is saying. Happens. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life and gives you a new heart. You get new desires. This means that Christianity is, is totally different than religion. Okay? Religion says your desires are bad. It's all about behavior modification, right? We're going to make up a lot of rules so that you don't go do bad things, and if you do, we're going to really punish you. And so it's all about fear and intimidation and control and shame and guilt and what you can't do. Religion says, get rid of all your desires and just follow the rules. So this concept of a new heart is totally different because the new heart has new desires. It's not about what you don't get to do. It's about what you get to do. It's not about... It's about not always denying what you really want to do. It's about going for your new, deepest desires. And here's how you get these new desires. You delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Here's what it's saying. If you love God, if you delight in God, if you're satisfied in God, if you enjoy God, God will actually put desires in your heart and a passion to pursue them. So now life is not about what you don't get to do. It's about what you get to do. It's not about being a passionless person. It's about being a very passionate person. And there will be times of conflicting desires, of course, right? Sometimes you're going to want to do things that you shouldn't. It takes time. We read in Proverbs 4.18 that the path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. So that means it takes some time to get there. But in the new heart, by the power of the Holy Spirit, your regenerated heart will have deep desires. And those are going to be God's desires for you. So he will give you those desires so that your will and God's will can come together. What God wants is what you want. What God wants you to do is what you want to do. And it's about being passionate and pursuing what God wants for you. So God wants you to worship, so you want to worship. God wants you to be generous, so you want to be generous. God wants you to be humble, so now you want to be humble. God wants you to serve others. So now you want to serve others. C.S. Lewis said it. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're too easily pleased with lesser desires rather than pursuing with great passion our deepest desires that God has put in our heart. So if you're a Christian, you need, you need to pay attention to your deepest desires. Those are likely desires given to you from God. Those are desires that God wants you to be passionate about and pursue. So for some of you, that might be you know, ministry or it's having kids, it's, it's serving others, it's your marriage, strengthening your marriage, learning scripture. 
growing in humility, it's honoring God. Christianity is about a new heart and the power of the Holy Spirit giving us a new wellspring of life. All right? Amen. Let's pray. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a new heart so that we can live a new life and pursue the passions of the new heart. I pray, God, that we would delight ourselves in you and that you would give us the desires of our heart. I pray, God, that they would, that you would draw out from the depths of our heart those deep desires that you have placed there and that we would live our lives passionately pursuing them for your glory and for our joy. Father, we pray that you would continue to help us. Help us all to understand the riches of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in Jesus Christ, in whose name that we pray. Amen.